The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Sermon text this morning comes from Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, it's a great privilege to be with you this morning. I think that the last time I preached here at the North Campus was in 2014, so it's been about eight years. And uh, man, what a joy to be back here uh, with you all. Um, as you may, some of you may know, uh, we're coming off here this weekend, um, Godward Life, a new gathering for serious joy that uh, in partnership with Desiring God, Bethlehem College and Seminary, um, had over 550 attendees at the downtown campus, uh, learning from 27 teachers in the Bethlehem community, eight of them who are pastors, professors, and pastors' wives at this campus. So eight people in here, or in the next service, I suppose, um, were blessing 550 people from 28 states all over uh, America who came to go Godward together. And so I'm so grateful for the various ways that God has woven this campus in particular with uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary. Since this is Focus Weekend, um, I just want to say one brief thing about our school. We aim at Christian maturity, which we define as a clarity of mind and a stability of soul and a readiness to act rooted in gravity and gladness in Jesus. At at our college, we want to graduate mature men and women who are ready to witness for Christ in any vocation with wisdom and wonder for the rest of their lives. And at our seminary, we want to graduate mature leaders who are ready to shepherd God's people with biblical clarity and Christ-exalting affection for the rest of their lives. We do that in our intentionally small model and cohorts and, and all of that because we believe education is formation and there are some things you can only learn face-to-face, life-on-life. Like I'm guessing, let's just I'll show of hands here, how many of you had a, a um, pastor teacher, mentor in your life who left a deep impact for Jesus? Just raise your hand. Any of you? Okay, you had that. Okay, put them down. How many of you had friendships forged when you were younger, in your teens, 20s especially, that are still 
lifelong friends, the sort that you can just pick right back up with anytime you see them. Okay, good. We've tried to design an education that makes that happen over and over and over again. And it is such a precious thing to be a part of. And I am so grateful that this campus and soon to be, Lord willing, church is so invested in what we do and that you're willing to be a part of governing this school. So thank you very, very much. It is a great privilege to serve with you in that great work. Now, if you want more information, I'll be out at the the booth there after uh, in order to talk more. But what I want to do now is pray because I want to go to the foundation of what we are built on. So pray with me. Lord, uh, I am not ignorant of the heaviness that is in this room. I know some heaviness in this room and in our wider community because of suffering. Lord Jesus, you said in this world we will have trouble. And we feel the weight of that trouble all the time. I feel it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us now to take heart because you have overcome the world and you've done so through the greatest news possible. So help me to be faithful to your word and help these to faithfully hear that we might be filled up with all of your fullness to face the troubles that weigh us down. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The heart of the gospel is that God is for you. That's about as simple and direct a way as you can say it. God is for you. But that little simple sentence requires some unpacking. So let me say it a little bit expanded. There is one living, sovereign, all-glorious, and triune God. He is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, all-sufficient, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the maker and sustainer of the world and the Lord and ruler of history. And this God, this one living, sovereign, triune God, is for you. He's on your side. He's in your corner. He's not indifferent to you or apathetic about you. He's not hostile to you or opposed to you. His goodness and His mercy are devoted to you. They pursue you all the days of your life. That heart of the gospel is that God is for you. Now, if we're honest, few of us feel the glory and wonder of that reality all the time. We hear it, confess it, sing it. We want to boast and glory and exult in it, but if you're at all like me, you know our hearts struggle to rise to meet the glory of that. And one reason for this struggle is confusion. We don't see it clearly. So my modest goal this morning is to say, sow some seeds of clarity from Romans 8 about the heart of the gospel in hopes that your affections will be raised higher and then hopefully help you to testify to the heart of that gospel to the world 
around you. So in this passage, you heard the language of charges and justification and condemnation. And so when you hear those words, you need to know what sort of room you're in and what sort of room is it? It's a courtroom. There are three people in view in this courtroom. There's an accuser who's bringing charges. There's the accused who is on trial. And there's the judge who renders the verdict and pronounces the sentence. And this is where our first confusion can come. As Christians, we know we're the accused, God is the judge, but the world around us is confused precisely on this point. Like for many people, the idea that we humans are the accused is kind of a problem. Like they don't see themselves as the criminal in that courtroom. In fact, for many people, God is the one who needs to come down to the station and answer some questions. C.S. Lewis noted this 75 years ago. God is the one on trial. And this created a new situation in Lewis's mind as we think about evangelism. Here's what Lewis said. He said, The early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers, whether Jews or pagans, a sense of guilt. And so the Christian message was in those days unmistakably good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. On the other hand, he says, we have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. He goes on, he says, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Now, he's a quite kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, disease, then modern man is ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench, God is in the dock. So I'm going to call that the world's confusion. Christian confusion is more subtle. So when we Christians hear the language of courtroom, we know, okay, we're the accused, God's the judge, but we go, who's the accuser? Right, you heard that, right? Who will bring a charge, an accusation against God's elect? And so what do we think of when we hear the word accuser? And if we know our Bibles, we think the devil making accusations against us. In fact, the name Satan just means accuser. And that can feel a bit confusing because Satan's the bad guy. He hates us. He, he's a malicious liar and a murderer. The name devil means slanderer, diabolos, the slanderer. So he's the accuser and he's the slanderer and we go, what's he doing in God's courtroom? And so our imaginations at that point might lead us astray. Like we might begin to imagine a courtroom where there's the prosecutor, that's the accuser, is maliciously evil and he's uttering all kinds of false accusations against us, lying about us and slandering our character. And then we might think, well, what if, what if those accusations work? What if his false charges stick? 
which means that that judge is either blind or compromised, like he's either inept or he's on the side of that devil. And so that's a confusion. And so both of these confusion, the world's confusion about who exactly is on trial and the Christian's confusion about the role of the devil in the courtroom hinder our ability to rejoice in the gospel. In the former case, when we say, God's for you, he's on your side. He's declared you not guilty. guilty. The world says, who does he think he is? What do you mean trial? Or we don't even need him. In fact, that's just not even real. It's just a fiction to make you feel better. But if he is real, he's got some explaining to do. And in the more subtle confusion, we may feel some relief. Okay, God's for me. That's good. And he's rescued me from these false accusations. But good grief, what was he doing letting that liar into the courtroom all the time? In both cases, here's the common core of that confusion. Our difficulty, our chief difficulty comes because we don't recognize the reality and the gravity of sin. In that essay I quoted earlier from Lewis, Lewis, he said, the greatest barrier he faced in his evangelistic efforts is this. The almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. And apart from that sense of sin, the gospel just doesn't make sense. That's why a crucial part of the church's witness in the modern world is the reality of God's holiness and Jesus' demands for the world. That's what Dwight Moody, you remember the great evangelist, he once said, you've got to get people lost before you can get them saved. And that's difficult in the modern world. There's a number of reasons for that. One is because the modern world rejects the moral law of God. And Lewis, again, was real helpful on this. He said, you know, common thing for most of human history, all peoples believed in an objective moral order. You had to conform yourself to it. You couldn't bend it to your will. And that was, he called it the Tao, and he did that because he wanted to stress it's universal and say it's not just a Christian thing, this is a universal human thing, objective moral order. And he said it was this, the doctrine of objective value, the idea that certain attitudes, emotions, are really true and others are really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of thing that we are, that was common to everybody. Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, pagan, whatever differences, and obviously there's massive differences among those religions on all sorts of massively important questions, but common at the root, everybody knew reality's reality and I need to conform to it. That's what all those pagan sacrifices were for, trying to appease the gods because they're angry. Modern people, they view reality as Plato to be manipulated according to our wishes, our desires. There's no law that binds all of us, no lawgiver that stands over us as a judge. And so for Lewis, the difference between ancient man and modern unbelievers is that the ancient man at least had a self-conscious sense of sin and guilt. And modern people have a subconscious sense of sin and guilt that often comes out sideways. Like it's still there pressing, but man, they are pushing it down. We're a guilt-ridden people who no longer believe in objective standards. And this is why, just for one reason, little parenthesis here, this is why when some, uh, some Christian leaders look at the state of America, West, 
and they celebrate the demise of what they call cultural Christianity. Okay? Say, cultural Christianity is going away. Good riddance. Yeah. Because they thought if that was a hindrance to the spread of the gospel, it lulled people into a false sense of security, it covered over evil, it was a stumbling block. Good riddance. And I and they say, there's truth to that criticism. Right? Like, cultural Christianity never saved anybody. You never got saved because you got born in a society that was Christian, ever. And when it covered over sin and evil, as it did, and it was used to baptize ungodliness, God hated it, and we ought to be able to say that was evil. But cultural Christianity, however imperfect, was and is a manifestation of that moral order. And so in that sense, it was always kind of a, a form of pre-evangelism, like it was tilling the soil by reminding people there is a God and there is moral order in the universe. And so through laws and customs and cultural practices, it reinforced there is a God over you and you are answerable to Him. It never saved anyone, but it did give many a sense of sin and guilt which prepared them for the good news. And this brings us back to a a second difficulty for us in the modern world about this courtroom and the good news that God is for you. I know that many of you want your friends and your families and your neighbors to know Jesus. You, You really do. And we don't want them to stumble over other things. Like we think, okay, look, if if my neighbor stumbles over Jesus, that's okay. But let's just get all other stumbling blocks out of the way. But here's what here's what we try to do sometimes, right? problem is you can't separate Jesus from his demands, including the demands of that moral law which presses upon us and which he established. Like you can't water down or mute the voice of God in his word and in the conscience. And it is very tempting to do this. How tempting is it to present Jesus only as the fulfillment of people's desires and aspirations, as the source of comfort and happiness, without ever pressing upon them the reality of God's law and their sin. Like, how easy is it to turn Jesus into just one more malleable part of reality that we bend and shape to suit our desires? One more lump of Play-Doh. How easy is it to remake God in our image rather than face the fact that we've dishonored Him as the one whose image we bear. And so in the face of those difficulties, the loss of that consciousness of the moral law in our culture, and the temptation as Christians to please people by muting the demands of Jesus, what do you do? What do you do? I think we must labor to creatively and clearly and courageously press the law of God on the consciences of men. Like, remember Nathan and David? Okay? Remember that story? You got to work to lovingly, clearly awaken a moral sense in our friends and neighbors, and then lovingly and clearly turn it to say, you're the man. And we do this in hope that they feel that lostness and are able, therefore, to see and savor the heart of the gospel. And that brings us back 
to us and that subtle confusion that we have about the courtroom. Because here's the reality. You must not think that the accuser in God's courtroom is a liar. Because the reality is, he does not need to lie. So just for a moment, I just want you to imagine this. Instead of the devil as the accuser in the courtroom, imagine the holiest of God's angels is the prosecutor. And he stands before the righteous judge and he turns to Romans 1 and he points at you and he says, you've not honored God as God. You've not treasured Him and delighted in Him supremely. You've not given thanks to Him for all of His many kindnesses to you. You've exchanged His glory for idols, His truth for a lie. You've worshipped and served creatures, especially yourself, rather than the Creator. You've followed the lust of your heart. You've debased your mind. You've despised the masculinity of men and the femininity of women. And you've indulged every sort of dishonorable passion. You've been filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. You're full of envy. You're full of murder, strife, deceit. You gossip. You slander. You hate God. You're insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. You know what God says about those things. It's written on your heart. And yet you have suppressed that truth and celebrated ungodliness in yourself and in others. You are the man. That's the reality of the situation. Now just imagine sitting there in that courtroom knowing that every word from that holy angel is true. And every ungodly thought, every sinful desire, every unrighteous deed is just laid bare with damning evidence. And then, imagine that that infinite, holy, and unimpeachably righteous judge looks at you and says, not guilty. No condemnation. Righteous justified. More than that, he says, look, I'm 100% on your side, man. I am all in your corner. I've got your back and all of my goodness and everything I have is now yours. Now that cries out for some explanation. And that's what Paul gives in Romans 8. So look back at the passage with me. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? 8.33. God is the one who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There's a series of questions and answers there. And there's a profound argument in those questions and answers. It's this. If the Supreme Court of the universe has ruled in your favor, what charges could possibly stick? Who could possibly bring a charge against you if the supreme judge has already rendered verdict? God is the justifier. Who's to condemn? Literally, it's who's the condemner? Where's he at? Where's that condemner? And the answer, he's gone. Paul then points to the 
foundation of justification? What's underneath that verdict? And he reaches back, I think here, to an earlier argument he made in Romans 3. You can listen to it here from Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the angel said to you. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in His blood to be received by faith. And this, this putting forward was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He'd passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He could be, listen, both the justifier, that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, God justifies the ungodly as a gift, as grace, because of what Jesus has done. Jesus pays the debt, satisfies the judgment through his death, and we receive it by faith, and God is able to be both truly righteous and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. In other words, the reason that you, as a guilty sinner condemned for rebellion against God, can be declared righteous is because Christ died for you. He was raised for you. He ascended to heaven and sits at God's right hand for you and even now is making intercession for you. In other words, there is a fourth person in this courtroom. Not only is there a judge and not only is there you the accused and not only is there an accuser, there's an advocate. 1 John 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's the unpacking of the heart of the gospel. The righteous judge justifies you, counts you righteous because you are united to Jesus Christ, the righteous one by faith, who died, was raised, ascended, and ever lives to plead for you. And don't miss that intercession piece there in the text. Book of Hebrews, we would jump there. Hebrews 7, he says, Hebrews 7, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant because unlike those Levitical priests, he holds his priesthood permanently. Never steps down. They died, priesthood over. He died, and he was raised. He continues forever, seated at God's right hand, and as a result, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, here's the deal. If that was all, that would be pretty amazing. Right? That's pretty amazing. But in this passage, Paul's like, there's more. On Friday at the Godward Life gathering, Pastor John quoted Romans 5. Remember Romans 5? And what struck me in that passage recently is the repeated uses of phrases like, not only that, and much more, and more than that. You know what I'm talking about? Remember this passage? Okay, it's like, we have peace with God. Yes, that's good. We've obtained access into the grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of glory. All right. And then Paul says, not only that, we rejoice in sufferings. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And since, since we've been justified by, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from God's wrath. Since we were reconciled while enemies through his death, that's good news. Much more shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in the hope of glory. We see the same element here, right? He died. You hear it? Look at there. You see it. He died. More than that, he was raised. More than that, he ascended. More than that, he intercedes. This is so big, okay? Like, the God who is for us, the God who meets us in the person of Jesus, this is probably the thing I want you to walk out of here with more than anything else. He is the God of more than that. He's the God of, but wait, there's more. There's always more. And not just in terms of Christ's work, but in terms of the good that he intends for us. So notice the shift. Did you see the shift when Daniel was reading that earlier? We go from a courtroom, accusation, justification, condemnation, and all of a sudden in verse 35, you see what's new, what shows up? It's weird. It's a weird, this is not a courtroom word, or it's a very unusual courtroom. It's the word love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I thought we were in a courtroom. And then notice what he does. He presents obstacles that could conceivably separate us from Christ's love, right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. You see the difference here. Courtroom questions had to do with sin and guilt and moral evil. That's one sort of barrier to God's being for you. This question has to do with suffering and hardship and natural evil. That's something that is a barrier to God's being for you. How? Well, Paul's argument here is that the work of Christ completely removes the first and fundamentally transforms the second. The death, resurrection, ascension, and advocacy of Jesus removes all sin and all guilt. No condemnation, real justification, no higher appeal. But more than that, the work of Jesus transforms the suffering that we endure on His behalf. As He says, for your sake, we are being killed and treated like sheep to be slaughtered. These sufferings that we're talking about are sufferings for the sake of Jesus. And I just want to draw attention. He doesn't limit himself to merely persecution. It's there. He includes all manner of suffering, distress, famine, nakedness, danger. Those sufferings too are for Jesus' sake. And how does it do it? How does he transform them? He makes them work for your good. That's what he says in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things, tribulation, distress, persecution, and the rest, work for your good. Or put it another way, he says, the work of Jesus makes us more than conquerors in all these things. Now what does that mean? What does more than conquer mean? Like, okay, 
When you conquer something, it means you overcome it. You don't let that thing hinder you from getting where you want to go. That's conquer. That's overcome. So you conquer tribulation and distress and famine and so forth. That means you don't let those things prevent you from reaching your destination. A conqueror, in other words, endures. So then, what's more than a conqueror? More than a conqueror recognizes these barriers are not merely hardships to be endured and overcome, but they are themselves the means of getting me where I want to go. Of getting me more of God. A conqueror endures suffering. He guts it out. A more than a conqueror rejoices in suffering because suffering works endurance and character and a hope that will never disappoint. He knows. He is persuaded. Paul's language. He is sure nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not life or death. Not angels nor rulers. Not things present or things to come. Not powers. Nothing in the world above. Nothing in the world below. Nothing in all of creation can separate me from God's love in Christ. And I just got to tell you, in the last week, or go back a little bit farther, last few months, a dear friend of ours just died of brain cancer after five years, 38 years old. Some of you probably know her. Leaving behind four children under 12. My sister-in-law, two months ago, was diagnosed with the same kind of brain cancer while pregnant with her third child. You know, there are people in here who had a stroke last week in their 60s. There's people at my church who had a stroke last week in her 20s. She's in a coma. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or brain cancer or strokes Is that going to separate you from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And that brings me here where I want to end with what our beloved Pastor John calls the greatest promise in the Bible. Romans 8, 32. The heart of the gospel is that God is for us and therefore no one and nothing can be successfully against us. Not now, not ever. And then in 8.32, he gives a particular kind of argument. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. In other words, if God did not withhold His Son from death for you, what will He not do for you? Like that argument is built on the infinite worth and value of Jesus to God. 
the Father's eternal and infinite love for His Son. Given that infinite worth of Jesus to His Father, and given that He gave His Son for you on the cross, there's no way He will hold anything back from you. You get that? Like, you get that? How oh, that's an argument? If He didn't withhold Jesus, then He's not going to withhold anything else. He'll give you everything. And amazingly, He'll give you everything with Him. Don't miss that. God gave up His Son, but He didn't lose His Son. God didn't spare Him, but He also received Him back in resurrection, which means all the good that God intends to give to you, He will give to you with Jesus. He will always be the God of more than that. And there will always be more. Let's pray. Lord, you show your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And therefore nothing, not the true accusations of angels nor the false accusations of devils, not the hostility of persecutors, nor the tribulations and diseases of life, not anxiety or depression or crippling doubt, not distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, not life, not death, not things right now nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from Your love. Root us in that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.